right, I am here with my brand new co-host, the one and only David Campbell. David, how are you? I'm good, thanks. So good to be with you. Happy Monday. And uh, today you have released your brand new book, Exodus, all about biblical freedom. Yep, I have. So we'll see where it goes. <laughs> By the time people listen to this, I'm sure it will have been out for a few weeks. And uh, they can grab that on Amazon. Is that correct? Amazon or any bookseller. Great. Is it on iBooks? Sorry? Is it on iBooks? It it should it should uh, make its way onto any platform, or you should be able to go into any Christian bookstore, certainly Barnes and Noble, all those places, because there's yeah, it all Sick. it all makes its way onto. Oh, the- yep, I see it there. I'm gonna buy it live right now on this podcast. Oh, this makes me so happy. I read all my books on iBooks. So this is uh, this is a great day for me. Yeah, well, I'm surprised they've got it converted already into electronic format, but there you go. Congratulations. So excited to read it. And the forwards by uh, Matt Chandler. It is. He was very gracious to write very nice forward. Take his time reading it. Yeah. Uh, Well, I can't wait to dive into it. I'm sure it's going to be really uh, insightful as all of your work is. So uh, last week uh, we kicked off a conversation on the subject of original sin, and we're only able to talk for about 35 minutes or so. So we're going to hit Part two. So uh, why don't we do this? Why don't we organize our thinking a little bit for this episode uh, into two categories? The first category being the evidences for original sin. And the second category being the ramifications for abandoning the doctrine of original sin. Um, And that way we can just get really practical and do our best to help everybody understand um, what the doctrine says what it is and what it would mean if we were to move away from it, which neither you and I uh, believe that should be done. So let's start with evidences. I think you kind of referenced a a little bit of scripture last week, um, but maybe let's take a little bit of a deeper dive uh, into that. Paul, Yeah, sure. Paul addresses this in Romans because uh, he's confronting a Jewish theology, uh, Pharisaic theology, that basically says, uh, there's enough goodness in me that if I perform all of these uh, works, uh, some of which are religious, you know, rituals, and some of which are good works, moral good works, and that the Jews had a kind of a balanced scale theology, where if you had more good than bad, you were in, and all of your works would be analyzed by God and added up. And of course, the Pharisees in particular were very intent on uh, obedience to the law. And then they added hundreds of extra things that weren't in the law. And of course, they were, you practically had to be a full time religious leader in order to obey most of those. So that put them in a really great position. So Paul's coming along and he's fighting this because he, he that's what he was. He was, he says, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He absolutely believed that until this day on the road to Damascus, he got knocked off his donkey and blinded by the appearance of the Lord Jesus to him. And that upset all his apple carts. And one of the things that he understood through that was human nature is fallen and that we need a savior and the savior is Jesus. 
So when he writes Romans, he's writing to kind of correct this picture or correct this picture that the Pharisees have that he himself was raised in. And he does it, first of all, in Romans by saying that the God, he says the gospel is the righteousness of God from faith to faith is revealed uh, in Romans chapter one and verse 16. And then in a couple of verses later, he says, but also the wrath of God is revealed. So the gospel always reveals two things, the, the good news and the bad news. It reveals the righteousness of God, uh, which is that God sent a savior to die for you and me and save us. But it also represents or reveals the anger of God against sin. And the two are two sides of the same coin, because the reason we need a savior is because we're sinners. So he starts off in Romans chapter one, verse 18, through uh, to the end of that chapter in going through all of the sins of the Gentile world. Mm -hmm. And then he turns his cannons against uh, his uh, fellow Jews and the Pharisaic teachers he'd been raised in, in chapter two and the first part of chapter three, by saying, well, you know, who are you? Because you condemn these things and others, but you do them yourself. Right. And then he concludes in chapter three of Romans verses nine to 20, with a long list of scripture quotations, which indicate that no one actually is righteous before God. And at the very end of all of that, in verse 20, Romans 3, he says that everyone is accountable. The, the law holds everyone accountable. Mm-hmm. Um, you are accountable uh, if you're a Gentile through, your, through natural revelation of God. Mm-hmm. You know enough to be accountable. And you're even more accountable through the law if you're a Jew. Mm-hmm. So no one is going to be justified in the sight of God. No one has enough brownie points to make themselves, uh, to give themselves, uh, to make, let me put it this way, to make God obligated to accept them right. into his eternal presence. Nobody. So just pause right there, right? Uh, one of the things that you said is that the tradition that Paul was raised in of Jewish theology did not have a developed doctrine or thought along the lines of the fallenness of humanity. They looked at it more in regard a, I guess the covenant of works, right? Like fulfilling the law and performing righteous acts to then be accepted by God. Is it, is it safe to say, is it true to say that when Jesus comes into the world through his teaching, one of the things that we become aware of is just how fallen we are. So like when he, when he gives the sermon on the Mount, for example, I I can't read that sermon without becoming very aware of how indicted I am before God, because even if I were to have all of the outward stuff together, which I don't, and I don't believe anybody does all of the inward stuff that Jesus talks about just leaves me in a place of, I do need saving. I am inherently sinful. Yeah. Well, it wouldn't be fair to say that the Jewish theologians had no understanding of sin um, because they did. They simply felt that if you really did your best, right. that your good deed, you'd always, there'd always be bad deeds because we're not perfect. We are fallen. They understood that from Genesis. Mm-hmm. But if you did your best, your good deeds could outweigh your bad deeds and God would accept you. And uh, so 
Paul's argument is that, and really all Paul is doing is giving his own sort of exposition of the Sermon on the Mount, and he's approaching the same topic from a different way that Jesus Mm, did, mm -hmm. which is that, you know, and you rightly say in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is critiquing this very same Pharisaic way of thinking that you reduce the requirements of the righteous and holy law of God, you reduce them to externals, which is the level at which you can say you've honestly obeyed them, right? So in other words, you instead of looking lustfully in your heart, you actually just don't go out and commit adultery. Mm-hmm. So as long as you don't go out and commit adultery, you know, the, the rest of it is doesn't make any, any difference. Mm-hmm. Whereas Jesus is saying, no, um, you don't understand the depth of your own sinfulness and that there actually is no solution because none of you can say, uh, none of you can say, that you've never committed adultery in your heart, so to speak. You know, n- none of you can say that you're free of envy or greed or wrong attitudes toward other people. None of you can say that. Nobody. Uh, and that's basically uh, the same thing that Paul's saying. So G- Jesus raises a very high standard and says, if you really want to understand the law properly, then you have to, you know, put some new glasses on because you're not getting it. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and Paul makes the same point in Romans one, two, and three. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Cool. So I guess going from Romans chapter three, does the uh, the case that he makes continue on from there, or does he move into different subjects? Well, then Romans is very logically developed. Mm-hmm. It says in Romans one sixteen uh, that in the gospel righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, mm-hmm. so that he who by faith is righteous shall live. And the first phrase, he who by faith is righteous, is expounded in the first three chapters of Romans. And the last two words, shall live, one word in Greek, but shall live, is expounded in Romans chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8. In chapters 9, 10, and 11, he goes back and makes an, uh, answers an objection that was raised by his you know, imaginary Jewish sort of opponent. Uh, back in chapter two. So Romans is arranged very, very carefully. And that's why we we have to read it that way in order to understand it properly. That becomes very important when you read Romans six, seven, and eight for other reasons, which we can have a discussion about some other time. But so what he's saying is he's outlining the problem in Romans 1, 18 to 3, 20. And then at chapter three, verse 21, he gives the answer. But now the righteousness of God is revealed by faith in Jesus Christ. And what he then says is that God passed over, God in his mercy chose to pass over the sinfulness of humanity because, you know, he could have smoked us a thousand times, but he chose in his mercy to pass that over. Um, But at some point, in order to be the holy and righteous God that he is, he had to hold us accountable for our sin. And if God does not hold us accountable for sin, he's not holy and righteous, nor is he placing any value on us as uh, morally, uh, as, um, you know, creatures made in his own image. Mm. If he doesn't, it's like, it's like the idea of you only discipline a son. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're a son, you're going to be disciplined. That actually is value being placed on you by your father or mother. Mm-hmm. And so God places value on us, actually as morally intelligent people made in his own image, he places value on us by judging us. 
sounds kind of funny, but it's true. You think about it. And so um, God says, in order to be the, the holy and righteous God that I am, I have to judge sin. But if I judge sin, I'll wipe humanity out. So what am I going to do? In my infinite love and mercy, I'll send my own son mm -hmm. to take the punishment for the sins that have been passed over previously. Mm -hmm. That's why Satan was in the council of God in Job, because he had a right to be there. He was making legal accusation mm -hmm. against Job because the blood of Christ had not been shed for Job. Mm -hmm. So Job says, smoke him. You know, no, Satan, sorry, Satan says, yeah. smoke him, you know, because Satan knew that uh, God had not passed judgment on Job or any or other, you know, human beings um, because the blood of Christ hadn't been shed. And that's why Satan gets cast out of heaven mm -hmm. in Revelation chapter 12. Uh, at the moment of the resurrection of Christ, mm -hmm. because there's no longer ground for accusation. So that's the good news of Romans 3, 21 to 31, that God sent Jesus to take the punishment for our sin, so that, Paul says, so that he would be just. In other words, God is just mm -hmm. in doing that. Mm -hmm. He has to exact punishment. Uh, he has to punish sin. Uh, in order to be the holy and righteous God that he is, but he chooses in his love and mercy because he is a loving and infinitely loving and merciful God. He chooses to pass judgment on his own beloved son so that we would have the pos possibility of eternal life through Christ. One of the things that you talked about last week was the historicity of the Genesis account. And I think this is kind of like one of the sticking points for people sometimes. It, it seems to me like Paul believed in a historical Adam, does the historical Adam need to be true in order for the doctrine of original sin to be true? So like the thing that was kind of leveled, uh, right, was the idea that Augustine believed that this, this sin nature was passed literally through the male semen, right, in, in sex. So is there, is there, I guess what I'm trying to get at is like, do you have to believe in an actual uh, biological direct line from you to Adam to believe that some sin nature has been passed on to you? Is that yeah, the biblical uh, picture? I, I haven't come across that with Augustine. Augustine believed that we were all, we all participated in the sin, sin of Adam. He said in, we are all, we were all Adam. That's his exact words. So he, when he came to Romans 5, verse 12, therefore sin... Uh, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Yes, and so where it says because all sinned, he translated that in whom all sinned. This can be translated that way. So he believed that we all literally sinned in Adam, that we were all part of Adam and that we sinned in him. Uh, a better translation would be because all sinned. And the idea is that, you know, Adam's sin and rebellion introduced fallenness into the world. Mm -hmm. And it's been there ever since. Mm -hmm. So that we inherit uh, a fallen world from Adam. Uh, and therefore, we all sin. But we all, but God holds us accountable for our own personal sins as well. Mm -hmm. So you say, well, how is it that, you know, we're all in this predicament because somebody else sinned, 
and we only inherited it. Um, but actually, when Paul says, because all sinned, um, that's us. Mm-hmm. He's, our sin is real. That word, it's a aorist hamartan. It's the, from the verb hamartano to sin. It always refers to actual sins in the New Testament. So when he says, because all sin came into the world through Adam, that's true. And it corrupted the world. And ever since then, the result of that corruption has been evident. But it, but we also all sin. And I think the idea of it is that uh, Adam is our representative. Because Paul says we were in Adam, now we're in Christ. Right. Adam is our representative, which means that if we had been there in the garden, we would have done the same thing. That's what the Bible states. And that in our sinning today, we're following the example of our own ancestor. And so... The fact is, historically, from Paul's point of view, sin entered the human race through an hi- historical individual, two right. of them, Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. And that's absolutely correct, that, that Paul believed in the, in the historicity of Adam and Eve. They were real people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, and if they weren't, the whole doctrine, the whole idea falls apart, um, even though it expresses something that all of us I think would agree is true, which is that creation is corrupted and fallen. Mm-hmm. But Paul um, says, you know, Adam was our representative head. He isn't quite as mystical as Augustine, who said we were all somehow literally an Adam. But theologically, we were all an Adam. Adam right. is our representative head. And if we had been in the garden, we also would have sinned. Mm-hmm. That's why God holds us all accountable. So the, the Bible's picture then isn't this like biological line. That's not what the Bible is teaching. The Bible is more no. teaching that covenantally, Adam was our representative. And, and, mor- and morally. And morally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's what the doctrine teaches. Mm-hmm. It's not through, you know, copulation or biological descent or whatever, as mm-hmm. if that caused the corruption. Right. A- Adam, the, the world fell uh, from a moral perspective through Adam's immoral, ungodly actions, Mm -hmm. and we have continued in immoral, ungodly actions for which God holds us accountable because Adam is simply a representative Mm -hmm. head for all of us. And so theoretically, and just go with me here, right? Like I, I do believe in a historical Adam and Eve, but theoretically you wouldn't have to believe in an actual two people named Adam and Eve. You would just have to believe that God is the creator of humanity and that at a certain point in time, which Genesis accounts for, humanity fell into sin. Y- yes, but in order for what? You say you... you in in order for original sin to be true. Uh, in order for original sin to be true. Uh, yes. Um, if you acknowledge that whatever the... However it got here in the first place, if you acknowledge that it is universally present... And if you acknowledge that God holds us accountable uh, and that the answer is in Christ, uh, yes. Right. There's no reason well, for doing that other than supposedly if you believe that Adam and Eve were, were representative in the scriptures of, of humanity. You, at that time. you can get away with that. But then you've got a problem because Jesus seemed to think that, you know, a man leave his father and mother and cleave mm-hmm. to his wife and so on. So Jesus and Paul both seem to believe in the existence of Adam. Mm-hmm. And so then you've got a problem. 
you're the accusing Jesus of being mistaken, mm-hmm. and that leads you into all and sorts that, of unbelievable. That, that so, undoes everything. <laughs> so I, I prefer to look at it. Let's believe in the historicity of Adam. And I did it. I think I alluded to it last week. I did a course for Theosu, and I'm not a scientist, but I, I read scientists um, for this. And the case for the historicity of Adam is not by any means out of bounds from a scientific point of view. Mm-hmm. If you understand, if you understand uh, how uh, Genesis handles the process of creation, mm-hmm. uh, it is coherent sci- scientifically with, um, you know, what current science uh, states to the extent that I quoted Dr. Andrew Parker of National History Museum in London saying, the question is how the heck, did the writer of Genesis know things that have only been discovered in the last couple of decades? That's what does he what mean by that? What, like, what kinds of things well, are you talking about? Uh, I, I, it's in relation to the development of the creation process that Genesis describes. And I refer you to Dr. John Lennox, Seven Days of Creation, or his other book, God's Undertaker, mm-hmm. uh, colon, has a science buried God. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Lennox is a chair, uh, in holds a chair at Oxford University. A chair is very prestigious, higher professorship in British university, British um, system. And Oxford is the number one or two rated university in the world. So right. I, so he's no dummy. He's no dummy. Does that, but, does that mean that you would have to have... But, but he, he, not- let, me just, let me just say this one other thing. The Dr. Lennox collates and documents and quotes the works of numerous other scientists, most of whom are not Christians, in support of his contention. So you'd, you'd have to go there. If you want to do this justice, because I'm not a scientist, and I'm not going to delve further into it, but read what he's got to say, and he'll explain you know, why Dr. Parker from London would have made that assertion. Dr. Mm-hmm. Parker wrote a book, by the way, called The Genesis Enigma. Mm-hmm. I mean, he wrote a whole book on this subject. How the heck is it? Well, let me just ask one question. In saying this, th- these people are not affirming like a young earth. Uh, no. Right. And okay. Dr. Dr. Lennox does not affirm a young earth, but he says Genesis does not demand a young earth interpretation, nor does it demand several seven literal days of creation. Right. The Hebrew doesn't require that. Mm. And I know some people might be offended by that, but I think he's right. It is probably the actual facts, though. Like the, this, when you actually read the Genesis account, it does not seem to be claiming a literal seven 24-hour day creation process. No, because the, the Hebrew word yom for day, it just like our, you know, well, in my father's day, it was such and such. You know, the word has Hebrew as a very uh, small vocabulary. And often one word has to cover four or five concepts. We right. have four or five or even 10 English words of the right. same thing. Yeah. And so it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily by any means mm-hmm. refer to a 24 hour day. In uh, any case, isn't it, isn't it also true that in the Genesis account, there does seem to be this picture that when Adam and Eve are put out of the garden, there's this picture that there are other people on the planet. So wouldn't it also be, no, not necessarily. When, uh, uh, when Cain is, is afraid to go out, uh, because he's going to be, uh, killed by other people right but you see then what about see in in the account 
again, the account is very sparing in mm -hmm. Genesis. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we operate on the assumption because of our fallen view of sex and sexuality, mm -hmm. we operate in the assumption that Adam and Eve never had sex. Well, why would we think that? You mean pre-fall? Right. It's entirely possible that Adam and Eve had children and descendants of various sorts in the garden, and they were all thrown out. You know, they, the, again, the account focuses on the two individuals that created the problem. Right. Not on anybody else. Fascinating. And uh, I, think the, I think the subsequent account in Genesis almost requires that. Mm. Uh, and that's that is viewpoint of Professor G.K. Beale, who is one of the world's top biblical scholars. So mm -hmm. it's not just some crackpot idea that I've <laughs> thought of, you know, while I was having breakfast this morning. I doubt you have any crackpot ideas. Well, you never know. <laughs> you talk long enough, you might find I've got some. <laughs> well, I've got plenty, which is why I'm talking to you. So, okay, this is really helpful. I guess the net of that is that uh, it is very reasonable to believe in a historical Adam, but that original sin is not connected to some biological line. It is more connected to him being our representative. And now in the new covenant, Jesus Christ is our representative and through him we have righteousness. Yes. I guess that kind of, that, that's probably a good way to sum up the biblical evidence. There's also another category of evidence that we could point to for original sin that would be more empirical in the sense that we can just look at the planet and look at people and go, what else can account for um, our state? What else can account for all of the evil that is present in the world? Well, you think you think so, wouldn't you? I mean, it. Um, you know, the 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 rise of progress in the nineteenth century, uh, which coincided with the um, you know Darwin, and and of course Darwin got his ideas from. Hegel, the philosopher, same place Marx got his ideas from. And, uh, but there was a, in that Victorian era, everything was progress and optimism. And, you know, the idea was that if you just educate people enough, that um, somehow you can reach utopia. And the 20th century, I think, kind of wrecked that mm -hmm. uh, with the world wars and Holocaust and all the horrible things that have happened. Um, People realize that human nature is not perfectible. Uh, you know, the more you educate people, that or the more money you give to them, that's not going to necessarily be people might get worse morally, not better. Uh, who knows? Um, and so today I think the evidence is all around us. It's just that people don't connect the dots. You know, they don't sort of people sometimes somehow seem to think, well, I'm somehow good enough that I can get into heaven. And they don't sort of connect the dots that God is utterly, if God is the God, a God worth worshiping, and isn't just a God made in our own image, then none of us will ever be righteous or holy or free from any imperfection um, the way that he is. Mm -hmm. And if we look around at the state, the state of the world around us, and we can say, oh, the Russians are doing all these horrible things, you know, as we're recording this, all that is going on in Ukraine, mm -hmm. and we're rightly appalled by it. But who's to say that we wouldn't do those things. In the 1920s, I'm sure very few people in Germany would ever have said that what was going to unfold was going to unfold. They would, they, they would have been utterly appalled by that. 
But, you know, when you scratch the surface of human nature and self-interest comes in and other things come in, it's not long before we find out that, you know, we are capable of infinite evil Mm -hmm. and uh, we're not capable of infinite good. Mm -hmm. I guess in the same even in our attempt to do good, like I think of the the proletariat, right, in, in Soviet Russia, and they're they're engaging in what they think to be an equalizing of of society. I I doubt that they saw that going where it was going to go in terms of the mass oh, well, murder. Marx Marx was a Jew, and of course, and and he'd read uh, the the uh, last chapter two of Isaiah and. You know, which is a promise of the return of the Messiah and, you know, heaven on earth and that sort of thing. But he, he wasn't religious. He laundered the, the theology and the religion out of it. And he actually believed that through redistributing, uh, you know, economic wealth, that you mm-hmm. could create a utopia. Uh, you could create a heaven on earth. He believed that. He believed that once the what he called the dictatorship of the proletariat was was established, um, that the final stage of history, they, they all followed Hegel. Hegel was a philosopher that believed that history unfolded in stages and everything was going to finally arrive at an ultimate stage of perfection. Mm-hmm. And uh, Hegel himself thought that was his philosophy. Uh, he was wrong. Marx thought it was the dictators of the proletariat and Darwin thought it was the highest form of evolution. Mm-hmm. But they all got it from the same source, which was this philosopher. That's what people don't realize. Mm-hmm. But it never worked out, did it? Mm-hmm. I mean, it when when communism took over Russia, it was horrible. It had it. They killed more people than the Nazis did in their own nation. Same in China. Mm-hmm. Absolutely horrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was anything but what they thought it could be, which just shows that there is no heaven on earth because people are all universally fallen. And I think if we were just to like, okay, so we're talking about these really grand demonstrations of the fallenness of mankind. And, you know, you could very easily listen to this and go, well, I'm not that. And I haven't done those kinds of things. But to your point earlier, I think if we were all honest, we would we would admit that we have the propensity inside of us for all kinds of sin. And when I say all kinds of sin, I I mean, literally any kind of sin I think is, is, uh, we have the potential for that in living in us. And um, if we were just kind of zoom in on our own individual experience, like not, not a one of us would want our thought life put up as a YouTube video. Right. <laughs> if, that, if that was put up on a screen and people said, Akira, watch, watch your lifetime's worth of thoughts, we would all be appalled. Um, and... I think if we were honest, we would go, okay, maybe there is something to this idea that there's a there's an innate fallenness in me. Yeah, I, I just think, I, I don't know how deluded people can be that, that they would deny it. And I, I, in one sense, people don't deny it. In one sense, people think, well, I, no, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than the next guy. Mm. And that, that's the deception, because we, we aren't really. Mm-hmm. And they don't, think about the fact that if God is the kind of God that is worth worshiping, he is completely without any fault. Mm -hmm. And if he accepts us into his presence as we are, then then he would be with fault because he would be compromising and contaminated by evil. Mm. So God somehow has to change us 
in order to bring us into his presence. And the teaching of the Bible is the only way that happens is through the blood of Christ, mm -hmm. the sinless son of God. Mm -hmm. That's that's what the atonement is all about. That's what the cross is all about. So I guess let's move from this into our final section of this discussion. We've talked about evidences, both biblical and empirical. Let's talk about ramifications. If Christianity were to abandon this idea of uh, inherent fallenness, original sin, and adopt where the world seems to be going um, of innate goodness, what are the ramifications of, of that? Or I guess the, the first ramification of, of abandoning original sin is the ramification of, that means that you then have to believe that we are born into this world, I guess, kind of morally neutral. Right. And that's what Augustine, who is referred to at the beginning, it was a, a great Christian leader who lived about 400 AD. Um, his great opponent was, was this guy Pelagius, we talked mm -hmm. about him a bit last week, mm -hmm. and Pelagius believed that um, we we're morally neutral and we could, you know, make good decisions as well as bad decisions. And his motivation wasn't entirely wrong in the sense that he saw a lot of depravity around him and he was trying, he was a monk, so he was exhorting his fellow monks to get with the program and raise their spiritual life a bit. But he, he lost track of the fact that we can't do that without the grace of God. And, a lot, you know, presented his thoughts in such a way that we could be our own saviors. It was inconsistent with the, the Christianity that he professed, which is what Augustine pointed out mm. that, you know, uh, and so uh, in, in the church, again, I mean, I think that there's a lot of relativism. It isn't that people are standing up and saying, um, you know, uh, I'm perfect. I don't think you'd have to be a lunatic to be that. But it's this old idea of, well, I'm good enough to get in and virtue signaling. You know, some people seem to think that by buying green products or ethanol gasoline or something, that they are worthy of the kingdom of God. I'm not, I'm not bashing on, mm -hmm. um, you know, climate activists or, or whatever, because I think it's a, probably a good thing to do, mm -hmm. you know, all those things. It's just that that doesn't make you a virtuous person. It just means that you're making some good choices uh, in, in context. Um, but self-interest is involved in most of our choices. Even in climate activism, it's this is in our own self-interest. Whereas Christians say we want to preserve and, and be good stewards of the earth because it doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. That's the reason we're good stewards, mm. not because it's in our own best interest or we're going to have less forest fires next year or something. I know I'm making it maybe being a little bit unfair, but um, we just lose track. And people out there it, it, who have never heard the gospel, who don't understand what the Bible says, and there's, of course, increasing numbers of them, they have a very fuzzy idea of uh, eternal life and judgment and, you know, that we're all going to the same place. And it's, it's this just sort of religious thing that's always been around. I guess there's a connection to to secular uh, philosophy in this as well, right? So, like, uh, I think of Rousseau, and Rousseau's thought is that we are born into the world, I guess, uncorrupted. We're born free, um, and then from the moment we're born, we basically are subjected to a, a lifetime of chains, you know, through various yes, systems. Man, man was born free, but everywhere is in chains. Right. Rousseau tried to, you know, figure that out. 
And so, but that's not too God. different. That's not too different from where Pelagius was kind of. No, his, yeah, his his analysis was more political, sociological, yeah. economic. Right. You know, like and, Marx. You know, and, we'll we'll attain perfection through economic reform. And I guess that's that's kind of the point that I'm getting at is one of the ramifications of abandoning original sin is that the only way to explain how we are in the state that we are in is is by saying well all the cultures of the world all the systems of the world all of our political structures all those things are responsible for making us the way that we are which to me seems uh that also seems lunacy and it also seems like a throwing off of responsibility um because then it we, is it is because they are we i think maybe charlie brown said something like that i mean mm-hmm. they're 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 us you right. know they're it we're, we're there's some mysterious forces out there causing right. us we yeah. are the system we are the system there right. isn't a system outside of people yeah yeah it's a fatalistic way of looking at things if you if you look at modern society this is one of my big themes it's a recapitulation it's a regurgitation of ancient greek religious mythology about fatalism, which is part of which is the idea that there's a great structure out there independent of us mm-hmm. that we're all squeezed into. That's postmodernism. Mm-hmm. It's ancient Greek mythology regurgitated. Uh, but that's not true. Actually, we are, it, what the Bible says is exactly, to go back to our beginning, is exactly what Paul says in Romans 5. It's not some external structure. It's we sinned. When Adam sinned, we sinned. Mm-hmm. He sinned. If we had been there, we would have done the same thing. You can't blame it on, um, you know, capitalism or colonialism or what, you know, uh, how whatever you the ism born, is, mm-hmm. you know, the circumstances of society that you live in or, you know, that your grandmother's great aunt, you know, dropped a hammer on her toe and it bled, bled down, the fa- went down through the family line and affected you. You, you, you know, we're all responsible for our right. own wrongdoing. Which I guess is kind of the the third, and we can make it the final ramification, is if you were to do away with original sin, it seems to me like God would have to do away with holding us responsible for our sin. Because if, if, if sin is only a system and a structure that is, that is kind of affl- afflicting us from the outside in, then it is only something that we are victims of, not something that we are participants in. Right. And, but that's and, a mythological point of view, because the, that system or structure is a mythology. It doesn't exist. And the Bible does seem to account for this idea that we are oppressed by sin, but not in the sense that it like came from somewhere out, you know, came from somewhere out of the blue and started oppressing us. We subjected ourselves to those chains. Yeah, so the, the Bible has a very specific, obviously, reason for the origination of, of sin, and that is a supernatural personal power of evil. Right. And that's the encounter of that supernatural personal power of evil with our ancestors, our progenitors. Mm-hmm. That was the birthplace uh, of sin. That's where the sin and rebellion entered. So it's a cosmic account, uh, which obviously humanity would consist, would um, dismiss as mythology, mm-hmm. but it's actually the truth. And current humanity has developed their own mythology, which doesn't make, which makes far less sense than the biblical account. I guess it's not surprising to me that it, it seems that people who would say no original sin is not a true biblical doctrine 
it, it seems like they would also be the same kinds of people who would say there's nothing vicarious or substitutionary about the cross and that ultimately they believe all people will be saved. It, it seems like doing away with original sin, doing away with uh, substitutionary atonement um, and embracing something like universalism all kind yeah, of well, hand uh, in hand. Then they're in a different religion. That's not Christianity. Right. That's not the gospel. Because once you take, um, you know, if if we could be saved in our own efforts, why on earth did Christ come? He was deluded, you know, and, and the cross was some kind of farce that had no effect. It was, wasn't necessary in the first place. So uh, that's not Christianity. Um, and so, you know, I mean, basically it's, it's warmed over liberal liberalism, humanism, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. um, that comes in the door of the church masquerading as progressive, you know, theology or something. But it, it's actually not Christianity at all. It's just warmed over secular humanism. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. That's what woke theology is. It's secular humanism with a religious veneer. Say more about that. What do you mean? Well, woke theology or progressive theology or liberal theology has been around for 300 years. It's nothing new. So the people that are, you know, getting up on the Internet and giving out all these statements and, and are label, labeling themselves as progressive and claiming that, that they dreamed up these ideas that nobody's ever had before. That's a load of cod's wallet. It's, <laughs> this stuff has been around for 300 years. It's been all through Every seminary, every denomination, it's destroyed everything it's touched where it's been accepted. And now it's just coming up for another go. Um, and it's it's just under the guise of, you know, there's a few different external terms thrown into it, like progressive instead of liberal, let's say. Um, but it 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 takes um the heart out of the, the Christian worldview. It's not a Christian worldview. It's basically a sort of a secular religious worldview in which uh, humanity is good, or at least there are parts of humanity that's good. Mm-hmm. And it all comes down to, you know, who has the right values and who has the wrong values. Mm-hmm. And it's a battle between good and evil, but with God largely taken out of it. Mm-hmm. That's not Christianity. Mm-hmm. You know, if you take the cross and if you take sin and redemption and the historicity of the events of the Bible, if you take those out, then within a generation, you, you can call yourself Christian and be part of a church. But within a generation, it'll all be gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why every liberal denomination that exists in North America is on death's doorstep. Right. This is the end result of a process. And it's so ironical that at the very end of that process, they, the, the, the devil starts all over again. Because this kind of thinking is never original. It's always parasitical. It's always destructive. It never creates anything. It just destroys what other people have created. And so every godly movement that has been built on the word of God, the devil attacks through this kind of thinking and tries to destroy it. Mm. And we never seem to learn the lesson. Why? Because of sin, which gets us back <laughs> to our start. Yes, you're just brilliant. Let's end on a hopeful note. So original sin is real. We are all inherently uh, fallen. No one had to teach us to sin. A funny story. My friend, uh, his son, I think is like six or seven years old, was at his baseball game the other day. And one of the competing players um, 
tackled him, which is not something that normally happens in baseball. And he gets up, his son gets up and he goes, I'm going to kill him. <laughs> and, uh, yep. And dad was probably cheering him on. <laughs> but I was talking to him and he's like, I've never said that around him. You know, uh, you know, maybe he saw it on a TV show or, or something, but we all have this in us. Um, but the gospel brings so much hope. So let's end on a hopeful note. Um, talk to us about how the gospel deals with our sin. Well, Jesus went to the cross to die for you and me, and he offers us a new life. And none of us. I'll ever be perfect in this life. We still have our problems. But as C.S. Lewis said, it doesn't matter where you start from. God can always make something of your life. Don't compare yourself with the next person because maybe you had more you know, to deal with than they had. But God can always make something of your life. And uh, I think that's the hope for each one of us. And for countless people that you and I have seen over the years that have turned their lives over to Christ and turned from darkness to light, it doesn't mean they're perfect but it does mean that God's made a difference because the, Jesus Christ is the only one that can break that hold of sin mm-hmm. it, so that we can actually fight back. Mm-hmm. We fight back not in our own strength, which we don't have, but we fight back in the power of the Holy Spirit. So even as the, the devil came in and supernatural demonic power to wreck things, God sends a supernatural power of his spirit in to help us to restore things. And that's our hope. Amen. David, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. Looking forward to next week as we dive into something new.